Thank you, Eric. My name is Daniel Bannon. It's so good to continue this morning our journey towards Easter. We are in the period of Lent, and next Sunday, then we continue, and then it's the Palm Sunday, and then Easter Sunday, so they are coming very soon. But this Sunday, we are going to uh, look at another question. You see, there are questions that Jesus or others ask in the last week. If you look in the Gospels, almost a quarter of each Gospel, a, a big, big chunk of the Gospels happens in the last week. The last week is very important. The last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion is very important for the salvation history, for the way that God works in our lives. And this morning I want us to, uh, to think of one of those questions that Jesus raises. And I want to start by asking you what, what for example, a question for you, what do you want uh, for your birthday? What do you ask? You know, I remember our kids when they were little, they will come up with a long, long list, you know, like, I want this, I want that, you know, for the birthday. And as they grew and now they are teenagers, the list is shorter. Maybe they have one or two items, but they are way more expensive, each one of them, right? It's like an iPhone or a smartphone or, or an iPad and stuff like that. These are things that are very expensive compared to the little ones that they, they might have 10 of them when they were in the fifth grade or the, the second grade and stuff like that. So... We all want things, right, for, um, for our birthdays. And um, I learned from friends that grow up to be older and more mature and experienced. By the time you celebrate your 80th birthday, I friend friends, I will say, what shall I buy for your 80th birthday? They say, nothing. I have everything I need. I just want you to come to the birthday. So something happens. You know, we start with gifts. And as we grow older, we just want people. We want friends. We want family. We want a fellowship, we want persons, and that's our gift to be with people. And if you think about the question that we are going to look, Jesus shifts uh, this question from what do you want, what things, to a person. And he says, who is it that you want? And the question comes in John chapter 18, verse 1 to 11. John chapter 18, verse 1 to 11. But what's interesting is, there are three instances in which the same question, you know, want or seek, what do you seek? Is one verb in Greek is zeitete or zeite. And it's basically saying, you know, the Son of Man came to seek, so it's God seeking, but also people uh, seeking God. God placed in us a desire to seek for Him, to search for Him. That's why, for example, you maybe not remember, but for 10 years in the 90s, Hillside uh, had a sandwiched in service in between the two services, and it was a seeker service. It was designed to respond to the needs of the people that are seeking God and yet are still exploring faith. They are not convinced. They are not yet in the church. They are still moving and seeking God. So the same verb is here. What do you seek? Who do you want? Who is it that you want? And there are three instances in which Jesus asked those questions. At the beginning of his ministry, right after his baptism, there are two disciples of John, and he asked them, what do you want? Then, after the resurrection, in the, in the morning of, on Easter, in the Sunday Easter, in the morning, right, right, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, 
And she's meeting with a person that she thinks is the gardener, but in fact is Jesus. And, and he looks at Mary and says, who is it you are looking for? And then in our text this morning, we are going to look like, like these questions to the soldiers that come in the garden with Judas to arrest Jesus. And he looks at them and says, who is it that you want? So I will go a little bit quicker through the two of them and then spend more time on the last one, right? Who is it transforming what? In the, in the beginning, it starts with this question, what do you want? Jesus just baptized, was baptized, came from the water of the Jordan River. John the Baptist, who baptized him, has disciples. Jesus has no disciples at this point in time. It is just himself being baptized. John comes with his disciples, and Jesus keeps coming to John, and he points to Jesus and he said, Do you remember I talked to you about a bigger guy that is coming? And then this is where the story picks up in John chapter 1. It says, the next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And immediately, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Is not who, is what do you want? And they look at Jesus and they say, Teacher, uh, wh- where, what do we want? Where are you staying? We want to know where do you live? Is there a place, an address? Basically, what they say is, We want to know. It looks like John is pushing you forward. John, our master, our rabbi, talks to you about something bigger than him. And just in case you, we need you, it's almost like saying, can you give us the 911 number so we can reach you? It's almost saying, in case of emergency, where can we find you? We have John the Apostles, and, and I mean John the Baptist, and he is the greatest man ever born. We heard that. And we follow John, but just in case... He cannot solve the problems that we are going, the challenges that we are going to, say, uh, to face. What do we do? Who do we call? Can we find you? And how can we find you? What's your number? So that's the first question. They want a Jesus in case of emergency. The second question is, who is it that you are looking for? It's at the end of Jesus, the gospel, it's at the end of the gospel, it's also at the end of Jesus' life. He is in the tomb, he is buried for three days, this is Easter Sunday. The women are not sure, nobody's sure, they think that their dreams are shattered. And Mary the Magdalene, she goes to the tomb because that it was customary to go and take care of the body. They kind of rushed him on Friday to put him in the tomb. And now Mary goes, and while she is there, there is a gardener. And the gardener says, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Who? 
You are missing somebody. You are crying for somebody. Your heart is crushed. I can see that. There is grief in your heart. Your dreams are dashed. Who is it you are looking for? And thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. Can you tell me where the body is? Because basically she is one of those ladies who says, I just want to do a good deed. I want to fulfill my religious duties. And I want to make sure that I carry on with our religious rituals, that the body is not neglected. I still need to put perfume and and all sorts of, of spices on his body and embalm him and carry for him. Please, tell me where I can find the corpse. I need a body. And Jesus turns to her and says, Mary? And I guess he used his Jesus voice, Mary, because she falls down and says, teacher, master. And then tries to embrace him and Jesus says, don't hold me too long because I want to see my disciples. Tell them that I'm going ahead of them in Galilee. So go with the message that the Lord is alive. That I am alive and I'm going to see my disciples tonight in Galilee. Tell them to meet me there. And then finally, we have the question this morning, who is it that you want? And it happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's interesting that it's still kind of linked to the betrayal, to the fight in prayer, the three hours of prayer. It comes after three hours of prayer. At the end of the three hours, Jesus looks around and says, look, my betrayer is coming. He knows that Judas is coming, and as they are coming towards him, John picks up the story in chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, and it goes like this. Now Judas, who betrayed him, he knew the place, that is the Garden of Gethsemane, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the the garden, guiding a detachment, detachment of soldiers, and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. They were armed and dangerous. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them. And this is our question. Who is it you want? Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Luke comments, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. Not with Jesus, but with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, Then let this man go. This happened so that the words he had spoken will be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. It happens that Jesus is confronting this detachment of soldiers. And commentators say that there must have been at least 200 temple guards, Romans, soldiers who have been in battles. 
soldiers who have won, soldiers who had bled, and soldiers who had the scars of keeping the Roman Empire powerful and strong. They've seen enemies that were fierce, people that were more scary than anything any human being has seen because that's how the people fought in their days. And they were soldiers who kept the peace in the Roman Empire, and they come because they think that Jesus is going to be surrounded by a crowd of people. Usually they knew that we have to arrest. The idea was we're going to arrest a religious, powerful leader, and he will be surrounded by people. When you go out to, to, to arrest somebody who is loved by the people, it's not going to be easy. There is going to be opposition. There's going to be fight. So at least 200 soldiers that are very powerful and skilled in arresting people in following orders. They just follow orders, right? That's what they will say. And they hear from Jesus the greatest question ever asked. I will say, the greatest question that God is also asking you and me. And my soul and your soul needs to hear this question this morning. You are here this morning, and you didn't know this, but when you decided not to go in the spring break by leaving the town, God wants you to know who is it that you want. Who is it that you want? You must love maybe Steve, and he is a good worship leader. But this morning you came for more than music. Who is it that you want? When we come to church, when we seek the fellowship of the believers, when you seek God's word, who is it that we really seek? Who is it that we really want to encounter? And the interesting irony is that the soldiers have the right answer. They say, Jesus... Of Nazareth. We want that guy who is famous, who was born and raised in Nazareth, and now he is making miracles and he is a powerful leader. And we want Jesus. But by the way, we don't know anything else about him. We don't know how he looks like. That's why we have Judas here with us to tell us who he is. And Judas, in fact, he had a signal. He said, the man I kiss, that is Jesus. Just so you know, I will kiss them. I will kiss him. And when I kiss him, you will know. And the the rule was that you arrest the leader and his disciples, his closest lieutenants, because you want to wipe out the entire movement, the entire rebellion, the entire uprisal. We are here to do our job. They are not there to know who Jesus is, to study, to argue. We just want to do our job. We do an arrest. We arrest Jesus of Nazareth and possible his lieutenants. We capture them, put them in shackles. We take them to the temple, and our job is done. We go home and rest and relax. And that's what they want to do. They just want to do their job. And it's an irony that they give the right answer, but for the wrong reasons. Their reason is, I'm just here to, do my, to check the box. I don't know. I'm not making pronouncements. I, we are not here to... To judge, to, to make judgments about Jesus, about the disciples. We are here to capture them, and especially Jesus, capture him and take him back. And when Jesus says, Okay, so you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he gives the greatest claim. He makes the greatest claim because he looks at them and says, I am. And in English, is, I am he. 
But in the Greek, it's just that Hebrew statement that God made earlier, I am. It's a powerful statement that only, only the Almighty One can say those words. Today we are here, right? But who can stand up and guarantee that next Sunday we are going to be here? Today you can say, I am, and all of us say, I am, we are here. But we don't know if tomorrow we are here, if next Sunday we are here. And this is how God comes and says, I am in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't something new. Basically, Jesus reminds them of what happened in history. When God came the first time to Moses in the wilderness, it was the burning bush. And Moses goes there and said, what is happening? Why is this bush not burning? And it keeps just, just, just keeping flames and attracting. He goes closer and God says in the burning bush, Moses, just take off your sandals because you enter sacred holy ground. And talks through the burning bush and he says, you must go to, to my people in Egypt and tell them that I want them out. I want them to come out in the wilderness and worship me. And then Moses says, who shall I say that is your name? Who are you, O Lord? You are God, but what is your name? And he says, I am who I am. That is my name. I am, I exist. And tell them, tell the Israelites and tell Pharaoh that I am has sent me to you. I am here, tell them that you are there on behalf of I am. And there is no more powerful calling to my life and to your life than to tell this world that we tell the words. In the scripture we have the, the, the life-giving words of the God who claims I am. I am. Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, he says, at one point, arguing with those that says, we are the sons of Abraham, he says to them, by the way, before Abraham. And in our English text, again, is we add, so before Abraham was born, but it's not there. Behave before Abraham is, I am. It's not before Abraham existed. Just before Abraham, I am. And what Jesus is saying is basically saying there's nothing that happens, nothing that exists. Everything that has life, everything that has existence, everything that you see, everything that you understand is, is basically because of me. Is sustained, created, made, shaped, formed, empowered because of me. I hold everything together in place. Before Abraham was, I was thinking of him and I created him. I, I allowed him to pop into existence in today's Babylon. And then he left his country and I will walk with him. I promised him the land. I gave him the covenant. I am. And there's no past in me. I'm not talking in the past or in the future. For me, everything is now because I am. For me, everything, it happens when I want to happen according to my plan. And every time God comes to the people and says, I am, it's something of a holy moment. In Ezekiel, it starts like this. There was a powerful vision. And Ezekiel says towards the end of the chapter, this was the appearance. It's a beautiful appearance. It's a very interesting vision. It's hard to see that machinery. It's like wheels within wheels. Everything is moving. It's like something that... Human mind cannot even fathom. And he says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. 
And when I saw it, I fell down. And many times when the glory of God is revealed, people fall down. And what do the, what do the soldiers do? They do the same thing. When Jesus says, I am, they fall down. They don't know why, but they fall down. There is something powerful. When Jesus discloses his identity, they cannot stand. They, it's like the rug is pulled off, off their feet. And they fall down. You cannot stand in the presence of the divinity. There was one uh, Romanian uh, scholar who uh, later in his life, or most of his life, taught in the University of Chicago. And his name was Mircea Eliade. And he studied religions. And then there was another guy, Rudolf Otto. And they studied and they said, what does it happen from a secular point of view? They said, let's look at all religions. What does it happen when people encounter the divinity? When there is an encounter and they said there is this powerful, eerie kind of feeling. And they called it terrible mystery. Terrible mystery. There is a, a mystery and yet it's very dreadful. Because people usually, they don't feel comfortable. And that's what the soldiers, they just fell down. All of those Romans, all of those hard-working, hard battle-tested soldiers, they fell down with guns, with lanterns, with torches. Everything was on the floor. And they were standing before this terrible mystery. Because somebody claimed, I am. No other religion, no other founder of any other religion claims, I am, like Jesus. All of the other founders of different religions, they say, I can tell you, I can show you the path to get to God. But Jesus identified himself and says, I am that. I am God. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the sustainer, the creator of all things. Before everything was created, it was me. And I was always with the Father. Me and the Father are one. I am pure light out of pure light and glory out of glory. I am God of God. And there's nothing, there's nothing that is not known to me. Every thought that you have, every action that you take is because I empower you, I sustain you. Everything that exists is in my power. I sustain all things. And when you meet this power, this glory, is something powerful that happens. And usually we fall down. In the book of Revelation, when there's this glory in heaven, everybody, the 24 elders, they throw their crowns and they fall down and they worship. Because there is something powerful when you encounter the divinity. And the most spiritual revivals that happened throughout the centuries in many countries, including Korea. By the way, I even heard recently that the president of North Korea, who is an atheist today, even his grandfather was exposed and his father to Christianity. Because at some point, especially at the beginning of the 19th century, 20th century 1907, there was a powerful, the most powerful way God worked on earth in 1907, was in Finyang, in Korea. And it was a powerful revival. And people understood the mystery of God, and they came to the Christian faith in droves, and influenced the whole Korean culture. And that happened that it triggered, but then the communists came. But they were steeped, they were told, they were taught, they saw what it means to encounter God in Christ Jesus and to walk with Jesus. But it doesn't have to be always fearful. You see, the, the soldiers have this fearful experience, but they do not convert. They do not become disciples immediately. They stand up again, and then Jesus says, you know, you came for me, so carry on. Take me, but let these people go. 
But sometimes when you meet Jesus, it can be a loving conversion. And some of us, some of us, when we meet Jesus and we walk with Jesus, I remember there was here uh, our sister from Hong Kong, maybe remember, like a few weeks ago, she was baptized here at the second service. And she said, I received Jesus, and we were in a restaurant when she did that, but she said, I didn't feel anything. Is that okay? And we said, that's, that's perfectly. You don't need to, to fall down all the time. There was this Muslim that came to faith, and we talked about it. He wrote that book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, Nabel Qureshi. And in 2005, he was converted to Christianity after many years of debating. And these are his books. You know, the latest one is No One But God, Allah or Jesus. But he is suffering from four-stage cancer, stomach cancer. And recently he said, you know what, I, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but what happens in the Muslim conversions today in the world, they usually have powerful encounters with Jesus. They have visions, they have dreams, and the Lord comes to them in dreams. That's what it happens in the Muslim world, especially in the Muslim countries. And he had those three visions and dreams that are also in his book. But he said, I'm not sure how long I will still be on earth. Please pray for me. But I asked the Lord to give me another dream or another vision. I said, can you, would you, would you? And he said, one of these nights, maybe like a couple of months ago, he said, I had this vision again, and I saw Jesus. He looked like a young man in his 30s, one of those Middle Eastern robes on him, and he looked beautifully. And the only thing that he did is he came and he hugged me. And when he hugged me and felt so secure, I felt so much love, he says. And I don't know, I don't care anymore. If you, I, I would like him to heal me. But he says, I'm sure that what he did in that hug is he took my fears away. I'm not anymore afraid of what's happening to me, to my body, because I know who's going to receive me at the other end. There is a lot of conversions. There are a lot of, lots of conversions in, in the Muslim world. I have a friend in Austria, and he, is, he said, on the Palm Sunday, we're going to baptize in our church in Austria 14 Muslims. And usually why they come and they, they, they say this, something like this. In Islam, we always lived in fear. Fear of God, fear of sin, fear of punishment. However, however, Christ is a God of love. This is what an Iranian refugee from Switzerland said. Then there was another one, and um, she's, uh, he said, I've been part of, I've, I've been spat on, told that I betrayed Islam, but through what I've learned is that I can forgive them. Forgiveness is a gift that we receive from God to give to others. And we will see later what forgiveness plays in the role of our lives. Another one said, I could not find peace and happiness in Islam. No matter what I did, I was trying, I did my best, but I could not find. So I want to see what God is doing in the Christian faith. But then it's the greatest exchange, right? It's not only the greatest claim, I am. It's also the greatest exchange. And Jesus looks at them and says, take me and let this man Go. He was referring to the 11 disciples because Judah, the 12, was already on their side. And the truth is that there is this transaction exchange that Jesus does there. And it's not only in the garden, but it starts there as a sign of his, I would say, substitution for us. Instead of us being tortured, he says, take me, don't take my disciples. You wanted Jesus of Nazareth, take me, let this man go. 
And it reminds us that in the day of judgment, Jesus is going to do the same thing. Most of the world religions, except the Christian faith, they say this. In the judgment day, it's going to happen this. You will be judged. There's going to be a scale. And you must be good because your good deeds must be heavier or more than your bad deeds. If your bad deeds are heavier, then you will be in trouble. Now, secularism or atheism, people that say there's no, they say this is fiction. There's no judgment day. There's no day of reckoning. There's no justice. There's no eternal sense of justice. God is not going to uh, balance the scales of the universe. If you are suffering from injustice, that's, that's your problem. Nobody's going to fix that. But the Christian faith looks at us, and Jesus in Christianity says, you know what, I took your place. I said, take me and let them go. And that's going to, he, he's going to say the same thing. In the day of judgment, he's going to say to Satan, you took me on the cross, therefore you let my people go. They are going free. They are walking free. Now, Peter is one of the disciples that is doing an interesting thing there. When he sees the soldier coming to grab Jesus because he offered himself, Peter takes his sword and he jumps on one of the servants and he tries to smack them. And he, maybe he avoids this, the, the blow to his head and Peter cuts his ear. And it's interesting that even when he is misunderstanding, Peter was with Jesus, one of the closest intimate disciples of Jesus and he misunderstands what is happening. He thinks that he has to fight now. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, put back the sword. Peter, you need to follow me. Peter, I still want you. You look a little bit crazy. I, I wonder, do you, can you imagine Jesus maybe saying, you know what, I changed my mind, take him. <laughs> he's so, he's, he's so he's a you know, hard head, you know, look at him. Take him. I changed my mind. You, you can take him too. Or maybe take him and let me go. And we, like Peter, we fail so many times. We have no idea how to serve Jesus. We think that it's violence. We think that it's sometimes we have to cut others to fight for our rights, to fight for what is ours, to fight for what we think is the just thing to do. And even, I think, if we fail, this is the good news. Even when we fail in following Jesus at discipleship, even when we are his disciples and we fail, he still embraces us. Remember what Peter said earlier? Peter said, oh Lord, I will never leave you, never forsake you. Even if all the others leave you, I will go with you to the death. And Jesus says, Peter, I have prayed for you so that your faith will not fail because you will be tested. You will be tested. So this morning, whether we are like Peter or like the soldier, the question is, who or what are we looking for? Are we looking for things like the disciples in the baptism of Jesus? We just want to know where we can fight Jesus when we need. Is that our religion this morning? Saying, you know, I just need Jesus when it's an emergency or a crisis. Are we maybe like Mary? And we say, you know what, I'm just going to be a good person. If, if he's a dead body, that's fine. I'm still going to worship him and, and maybe work and serve him and be a good person. I will settle for a dead body. Or are we like the soldiers? We say, you know, we want to finish this task. We just are here to check our box and then we leave, knowing that we can go and relax and have fun and continue our lives. What sort of a thing do we want? And who do we want, really? 
The question is, who do we want? And I think that the answer is, we want the living I am. We want this Jesus that holds us together. That holds our lives. That gives us salvation. That gives us courage. And he said, you will have troubles in the world, but there, be brave, be courageous, because I have overcome the world. Just so you know, don't let your hearts be troubled because you will have trouble. But just so you know, I'm going ahead of you. In my, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And I'm going there to prepare a room for you, a room that nobody can take it from you. No soldiers, no, no fight, no disease, no cancer, no illness, no strife, no wars, no violence, no ISIS. Nobody can take that place because nobody can separate you from my love, which is shown on the cross for you. So this morning, the only thing that we can do is invite all of you to join the Church of Christ. And later on, in a couple of minutes, we are going to sing this song, Give Me Jesus. It says like this, In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, and you can have all this world, but what I want is Jesus. And before we sing this song, I just want you to see another conversion moment. It comes from a soldier. Just watch it. It's at the cross of Jesus.
There's this truth that Jesus is still giving us life today. And he says, who do you seek? Who is it that you want today? Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you invited us to one Jesus this morning. And in the morning when we rise, there's nothing else that we want but Jesus. And in the evening, and in the day when we are going to die, there's nothing that we want but Jesus. We don't want the world because everything that the world has is temporary, is passing, is rotting. But we want one thing that stands forever and ever. The I am, we want you, the Savior, the Lord. And we trust our lives into his hands. And we ask and we pray to give us Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.